Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania, and this is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. And I'm joined as usual by Joe Works, who is in Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? I am doing well. And we're going to dive deep into Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in chapter two today, aren't we? We are. But first, I have a question for you, Jeff. All right. Can you name something that you're thankful for? Well, you know, very first thing that I'm thankful for is, is Jesus, the fact that he came and he died for our sins, so that we would have the opportunity to be reconciled to a God who is holy and righteous and who cannot tolerate sin. And I've sinned. And yet God has made it possible for me to be righteous in his eyes through the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm thankful for God's word, God's word that informs me how to live my life and informs me what to teach my children and what they teach their grandchildren. I'm thankful for my children and my grandchildren and my wife. I'm thankful for you, Joe. You know, it almost seems like you were ready for that question, but we had not discussed it beforehand. Uh, I appreciate the, uh, um, the absolute uh, certainty with which you spoke. I very much appreciate that. And I am likewise thankful for, for you and Drew and, and Chase, who's not with us, and uh, uh, for this opportunity. Uh, what a blessing it is that we can live so many miles apart and, and study together. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for these opportunities. And, you know, we, we often talk about being thankful for things that God gives us. And while, while the things that we have in this life are not the most important thing that God gives us. The fact is God does give us things that Jesus taught us to, to uh, pray to God, give us this day our daily bread and recognize our dependence upon him. And, and you think about the idea of this time of year and the, the end of the harvest period and, and a summer of produce coming in and, and being able to uh, turn to the God who's made all of that possible and, and acknowledge that we've been able to eat this year and we have things put up for the winter uh, because God has blessed us. Amen. Absolutely. All right. Well, in Acts chapter two, there was a feast day. It wasn't uh, the it wasn't the Thanksgiving that the United States of America has. Um, but it was a feast day. It was the Pentecost feast. These feasts, actually, Joe, let's just take a minute, minute to talk about this. These feasts were associated with agrarian ideas, agricultural themes. Uh, I think there's some scholars who try to make it out as if that was the underlying overall purpose. It was just about agriculture, and then they grew to have religious uh, connotations. That's not true at all. But they were to bring the first fruits of their harvest at Passover and then at Pentecost. Passover, and if I get this backwards, correct me, Joe, but if I remember correctly, it was the barley harvest that came in first at Passover, and then the wheat harvest came in at Pentecost yeah. seven yeah. weeks later, thereabouts. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And 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 Jesus is, I think, represented by the first fruits of the barley harvest. He is crucified at Passover time and raised from the dead on the, the third third day. He is the first fruits from the dead, and and then we are a first a sort of first fruits. Uh, James, I think it is James, if I'm thinking right, talks about us as being a sort of first fruits. In the, in Acts chapter two, you have this harvest of of people coming to understand the gospel and being baptized for the remission of their sins, and so you have 
kind of the 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 beast of Pentecost realized spiritually, I think there. So maybe you have some thoughts about that. No, I think you summed it up rather well. Uh, that's, that's really helpful for us to be thinking through. And, and clearly from the very beginning in Leviticus 23 or Numbers 26, when we see these uh, feasts being described in detail or, or even earlier with the Passover going all the way back to Exodus 12 and 13, um, uh, there was a, a spiritual message behind mm -hmm. them, not just uh, in relationship to, to harvest, but th that is in a very appropriate time. And maybe even think about a lot of the parables of Jesus kind of uh, tying some of those thoughts together as well. And so last week, we talked a little bit about the setup. We talked about this Feast of Pentecost and that thousands and thousands of Jews have come to Jerusalem from the various countries in which they lived for this occasion. We talked about the fact that having been raised in foreign countries, they spoke various languages, but the apostles were able to speak to them in all of their own languages. The, the, the people who were visiting could understand what the apostles were saying in the languages that they themselves had been born in. And uh, so Peter says, what you're witnessing here is what was said in Joel, that God said, I will pour forth of my spirit upon all flesh. And we, we took a look at that quotation. So today we're going to start in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, where Peter now jumps into the, the key point that he is going to make to these people. And the key point is going to be that the Jesus, whom they crucified seven weeks earlier at the Passover feast, that that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And um, so he's going to bring them to that conclusion rather logically. And so let's start in Acts chapter 22, and, and I mean, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. And I'm just going to read just verse 22 uh, for starters. That's all right. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by mighty works and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, even as you yourselves knew. Now, or even as you yourselves know. So it's interesting. He doesn't start off saying Jesus, the son of God. He doesn't even start off saying Jesus, the Christ, because th that's the question. That's the point of contention. That's the thing that he's going to try to pre prove to them. What he starts off with is what they knew. There was this man, Jesus, who came from Nazareth, and he, he brings in a little more information. You knew that he did these signs, these miracles. How would these Jews who have come from all over know this? Well, uh, they would regularly come to Jerusalem for these feasts, and on various occasions, all the way back in John 2, we see Jesus at the time of that Passover, uh, maybe three years before this, having Jesus having gone to Jerusalem at that time and done many signs. So, okay, you knew that he did these signs, and so you, you should recognize he was approved of God. That reminds me of the statement Nicodemus made back in John 3. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do the signs that you do except God be with him. And that's kind of what Peter's doing here. He says, look, people, if you just look at the facts that we all know, we know this Jesus was approved of God. Now, anything else you want to see in verse 22? No, I think that sums it up rather well. Uh, Thank you for verse 23. It, it, it is going to be interesting. I'll make this quick point. He starts with what they know, and then by the time he gets to the end of it in verse 36, I don't want to get too far, too fast, but he 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 wants them to know what that what all this is going to mean. So you, we have the, the word know at the beginning of this sermon and at the end of this sermon, kind of tying these thoughts together. Yeah. And you know what, though? That, that I, I'm glad you said that, because 
sometimes people lose sight of the fact that, that God has spoken to us in very logical ways. He said to us things that we could not know from mere logic, but he has communicated it to us logically. And anytime we learn anything, it's incremental. You start with what you know and you build on it. You start with arithmetic and then you build on it. You don't go straight from arithmetic to calculus. You have to learn algebra and you go the steps along the way. He starts with what they know. And what he's going to show them is what they don't know is that this Jesus is the Christ. And he's going to come back to that word no in a little bit. All right, take us into verse 23 and 24 if you like. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And so, again, these are things that are that are self-evident. Um, they're the ones who had had, had Jesus killed. Um, uh, they did it by somebody else's hands. They did it by lawless hands. Uh, I think the idea is that, that they were responsible. They might be, you know, it might be the temptation. Well, we, we didn't kill him. You did it by proxy. You turned him over to Pilate and to the Roman soldiers. You took him, and by lawless hands, uh, he was he was killed. In, in several of the sermons in the first uh, third of Acts, they're going to be pointing to that idea that you delivered him up to Pilate and, and that sort of thing. And, and he's going to bring in a little thing that they, that they probably didn't know. And that is that what you did, it was actually part of God's plan. It was according to the, this translation says, the determinate counsel, somebody might say the predetermined uh, plan, and foreknowledge of God predetermined and foreknowledge are two different things. God can has both. So I always illustrate this this way. So maybe everybody can see this. I've got a book here and I've got a set of keys here. Now I'm going to, I'm going to drop these keys. Now, there wasn't oh, a whole lot. They, I would have never guessed that they would have landed on that book. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. <laughs> Very helpful. Everybody knew the moment I let that wasn't a lot of time to know it, but you did. You knew it. As soon as I let those keys go, you knew they were going to hit that book, but you didn't cause it. You right. foreknew it, but you didn't cause it. I caused, I caused it and foreknew it. I, I foreknew it because I caused yeah. it. And, and this, this says that God did both. He, he both foreordained or determined, and he also foreknew. Well, I can, I can illustrate that. Uh, Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. That's what he says in John 6, or what John says in John 6. He chose Judas, whom he knew would betray him, to be an apostle. He put him in the position that he was so that he could betray him. There's a couple of things there. <coughs> Excuse me. He knew the character of Judas. <laughs> he knew what he'd do if he had opportunity. And he caused him to have the opportunity. Um, so God has been at work to bring about the things that would result in the sacrifice of Jesus that was necessary for our sins to be taken away. Absolutely. And 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 he doesn't mince any words here. That, that they had uh, taken him, um, uh, they had crucified him, that they put him to death. Um, you know, it, it's it's pretty amazing that he uh, is so clear from the outset. This this isn't a sermon that's kind of like 
well, guys, you all could have done better, you know, sort of thing, or, you know, God loves you just the way that you are. They've done something that is, is terrible, and uh, it needs to be pointed out in the same way that we can look at other passages. Interestingly enough, Peter will make some very similar statements in his letter in First uh, Peter, the second chapter, uh, I believe even speaking to, to us. He says in First Peter 2 and verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Uh, he, he took our sins on, uh, on himself. Um, uh, and so interesting, Peter speaks bluntly to them or plainly to them. He does so to us as well. So then we get to this part. You read all the way through verse 24. Right. Verse 24 is where Peter states the thesis, the thing that he is going to prove to them, the thing that, that is going to be a shocker to them. And that is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, now, remember, last week we talked about the idea that when Peter said, this is that which was prophesied by Joel, the pouring out of God's spirit, the Jews had an understanding from both Ezekiel especially and Joel uh, that the God's kingdom would come with the pouring out of God's spirit. Right. God's king, the Messiah, would come with the pouring out of God's spirit. So when Peter has already said, what you're witnessing and hearing here is the work of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit prophesied by Joel, that has already planted the seed in the audience's mind to think about, is the kingdom here? Is the king here? Is the Messiah here? So he starts talking about Jesus, and he says, this Jesus was God raised from the dead, and, and now he's going to begin his proof of the fact that Jesus is this, this Christ, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be centered upon this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so let's start in verse 25. For, so he's just said he couldn't be held in death, God raised him, for, because David said concerning him, so he's going to quote from the 16th Psalm, which was written by David. I beheld the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh also shall dwell in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul unto Hades, neither wilt thou give thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou madest known unto me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of gladness with thy countenance. So, Joe, I said this was written by David. And when David says, my flesh will dwell in hope, you know, if I were, if I were an atheist, I could not say my flesh is going to dwell in hope. hope I, I turned 65 last week. And over the course of, of the last 45 years, my body has done nothing but decline. And it's an inexorable, inexorable process, and I'm convinced, and I think everyone would agree, it's, you know, physically speaking, my flesh, it's downhill for my flesh from here. But David could say, my flesh will dwell in hope. And David, in the very next psalm, the 17th psalm, talks about his hope of when he awakes, and I believe he means when he wakes from death, seeing the Lord. So David believed he would be raised from the dead. A faithful, devout Jew could say, there's a resurrection coming, my flesh dwells in hope. There's, I have the hope that my body is going to be raised from the dead. But 
Peter doesn't, I mean, David doesn't leave it at that. David goes a step further and Peter quotes it and says, neither wilt thou give thy holy one to see corruption. What he's saying is this resurrection that I'm talking about is going to happen so soon after death that the body is not going to decay. And, and so that's going to be key to what Peter does with David's psalm here. Anything else you want to talk about before we go on to verse 29? And you can take us to verse 29 if you like. Yeah, so uh, 29 to uh, 31, maybe? Yeah. Uh, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. And so we could spend the, the whole time this afternoon guessing about what Psalm 16 is about, but we have inspired commentary here. Um, uh, you know, that is just so helpful for a preacher or a Bible student when the Bible tells you what the Bible means. I love it when it does that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's beyond argumentation then at that point. It's wonderful. And, and so David wasn't just king. He was also a prophet, this text tells us. And so when he wrote Psalm 16, he wasn't speaking about himself per se, as you already pointed out, because his body was still there. He, he did decay. Um, uh, but he was foretelling of the uh, the coming of the Christ and that the Christ would be resurrected in verse 31. He foreseen so, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to rush you there. Finish your point. No, no, that's all. Go ahead. All right. So uh, you mentioned um, what Peter alludes to in verse uh, 29, where P Peter's being a little diplomatic here, I think, in verse 29, when he says, Brethren, I may say unto you freely of the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us unto this day. So how, how much time has passed from the death of David, approximately, until Peter's sermon? Yeah, about a thousand years. thousand exactly. years. So, all right, David's been dead for a thousand years. There's an implication there. Nathan, you know my son Nathan. Yep. When he was a boy, he liked to... to if he found a bowl or a mouse or whatever, he liked to go and bury it. And then a few weeks later, he'd go back and dig it up and, and just find a little skeleton there. Yeah. Uh, after a thousand years, you are guaranteed that body has decayed, which runs counter to what it said in Psalm 16, where it said, you will not give your Holy One to see corruption. I like to compare this with Paul's sermon in Antioch in Acts 13, where Paul, you know, Joe, if you had just asked me, if I didn't know, you'd said, if Paul and Peter both spoke about the resurrection, I mean, about the, yeah, about the burial, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which one, or, or of David, and what happened to David's body, which one would be more blunt, and which one would be more diplomatic or more I would have thought Peter would be the one that would, and Paul would speak in more academic terms or something. Yeah. Not so. Listen to how Paul says it in Acts 13. He says, uh, verse uh, 35, because he says also in another psalm, thou wilt not give thy holy one to see corruption, quoting the same psalm, Psalm 16. 
be, he says, uh, but he whom God raised up, well, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse, for David, after he had in his own generation served the counsel of God, fell asleep, and was laid unto his fathers, and saw corruption. In other words, Paul says, David rotted in the grave. <laughs> and then he goes on, he says, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Psalm 16 talked about somebody whose flesh would dwell in hope because he'd be raised, but he'd be raised so quickly that his body wouldn't decay. And right. Peter's point is David could not have been talking about himself because he's been dead for a thousand years. So who's he talking about? So this gets us to verses 30 and 31, which you read. And let's elaborate on those two verses. So maybe just really quick, uh, verse 30, I, I'm wondering if you see this or if I've just... Uh... Uh, if I shouldn't see this, um, but when it mentions that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, um, I, I see that as a, as a reference maybe to Psalm 132, uh, verse 11, the Lord had sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it, I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body, um, and so uh, you've got it's almost like there's within the inspired commentary, you have a reference to another psalm um, uh, that uh, uh, points to to this uh, oath that was given to him. So when like David, make, David makes the statement in Psalm 16, because God had promised him that a descendant of his. So it's as if David understood yeah. when I'm saying these things in Psalm 16. I know I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the fruit of my body, a future, the, the, the seed, uh, a future descendant. Yeah, and that's the significance of David being a prophet. He's not just saying what he understands. He's saying what God is telling him to say. So, yeah. so that's, that's interesting. Uh, something else that occurs to me, just as you said that, and I had never thought about this. You know, we talk about David, uh, about Jesus being a descendant of David. And sometimes that's a little difficult to, to figure out because Jesus father, Joseph is a descendant of David, according to the genealogy we have in Matthew 1, and yet biologically, Jesus is not the son of Joseph, and therefore, he's not biologically the son of David through Joseph. He's not the fruit of David's loins through Joseph, and so some people think that, well, Luke's genealogy in Luke 3, maybe that's Mary's genealogy, actually, they think, and um, so then maybe Mary is a descendant of David, and that's how Jesus is a descendant of David. And there's some problems with that. I don't know what you think about that. There are problems with saying it's Mary's genealogy, and there are problems with saying it's Joseph's genealogy. But be that as it may, I've kind of hung my hat on Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 and verse... Um, Four, it says, who was declared to be, I'm sorry, it's not verse four, it's verse three, uh, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So according to the flesh could mean biological descendancy, or it could mean in human understanding. So in my mind, I've said he, he could be the biological descendant of David, or he could be adopted, and that counts just as well. Um, but here, what you have here in Acts chapter two is that it's, Peter says, David, as a prophet, knew that God had said that of the fruit of his loins, he would set one upon his throne. That seems to point to a biological descendancy, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess I would probably 
and, and I understand that there are some complications with seeing Luke as being of Mary, but when the Holy Spirit speak or when Gabriel, I'm sorry, speaks to Mary, yeah. in Luke in Luke 1 32, um, he says concerning Jesus, he mentions the name Jesus in 31, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, again, uh, it seems as if there's a reference to him being a, an actual descendant of David. Um, but uh, obviously God can do whatever he wants to do. It certainly is uh, the, the fact that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. Um, it would be a small matter for God to put him in a certain genealogy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So, but how does this fit into the logic of Peter's sermon? Well, logic of Peter's sermon is you have this psalm that you all know is the word of God. And they did. They knew that Psalm 16 was the word of God. And yet in this psalm, David says something that maybe at first glance seems to be about David, but it can't be about David because David's flesh saw corruption. And this psalm is talking about somebody who would not see corruption. And so Peter now affirms that this psalm is actually not talking about David himself, but talking about David as the representative of the Christ, that the Christ, verse 31, that the Christ neither was left unto Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Remember the word Christ is just the word Messiah. Mm -hmm. and, and it would make sense that David could speak in the first person standing in for the Messiah, because in the Old Testament, in both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, there are prophecies about the coming Christ who call him David. And, and in the life of David, you see foreshadowings of events in the life of Jesus. And David represents Jesus. And so Peter here affirms, and that's what he does. He affirms that Psalm 16 is actually talking about the coming Messiah. So now the question is, well, why should they, why should the audience go, yeah, you're right, Peter? I mean, Peter could get up and affirm anything. Why would they say, oh, yeah, you're right. Well, number one, he's logically shown David couldn't have been talking about himself. They already understood David was a prophet, that David's writings were the word of God. But then finally, this man, Peter, who's standing in front of them, is speaking to them in all these different languages. There's the signs of the Holy Spirit present, which would suggest that Peter is speaking from God. and so. He's a credible witness, and what he says next at the end of verse 32 is, this Jesus, the one I told you about from Nazareth, did God raise up whereof we, us up here that are speaking in all your languages, we're witnesses. We're credible witnesses. You can see the Holy Spirit's with us. We've seen Jesus alive. The word of God that you accept and know is the word of God said that the Messiah would come. David wasn't talking about himself. Had to be talking about the Messiah that he would be raised from the dead before he saw corruption. So that's the argument. Yeah, and, and this is exactly what Jesus had instructed them to do, that they would be witnesses uh, beginning in Jerusalem, going back to Acts 1, 5 through 8. Uh, we have that word witness there. Uh, when Matthias was chosen, he was a witness. And now he says, we are witnesses of this. And so they, they are giving this testimony um, not secondhand, but having seen the, res the raised Lord. And then, and then just to kind of drive the point home a little further that David was not talking about himself, Peter says in verse 34, uh, well, I, I guess we can't skip verse 33, can we? Be hard to do. 
<laughs> it's a great introduction to 34. In fact. All right, well, then let's do verse 33. Being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, he's talking about Jesus, uh, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, talking about Jesus, the one he's just affirmed to be the Christ, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. So what's going on right here is because, yes, the, the Messiah is here. Jesus is he, and he's ascended to the right hand of God and has poured this forth. He has ascended to the place of authority as king, as the, as the, the Messiah, and he's poured this forth. And, 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 and this is not based on any feeling or emotion. These are things that you all can see and hear. It, it's evident. The fact that I'm speaking to you, Peter, uh, is saying, you know, I, we're, we're talking to you in, the, in your mother tongues. Um, uh, this is evidence. The Holy Spirit has uh, uh, revealed this. And then to, to, to reaffirm the point, David was not talking about himself, that he was looking forward to the Messiah coming. He says, David, this is verse 34 now, for David ascended not into the heavens, but he says himself, and he's going to quote from the 110th Psalm, the Lord said unto my Lord, so Yahweh, God, said unto David speaking, saying, I have a Lord, and God spoke to my Lord. Well, who's between God and David? Well, the Messiah. Yep. Sit thou on my right hand. He just said Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. Sit thou on my right hand till I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. Get us to the conclusion of the sermon here. Well, uh, therefore, you know, so, so based on this, that you killed the Son of God. You, you killed Jesus. God knew it was going to happen. This was God's plan. God raised him from the dead. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Wow. I tell you what, it, it, it just thinking if I had been one of those people in that audience and I had been present seven weeks earlier and I had lifted my voice up and said, crucify him, crucify him. When the leaders encouraged the people to, we want him put to death. And, and now I'm back in town. And I'm back in town because I'm a devout Jew and wanting to worship God. And, and I hear this sermon preached, and it just logically walks through and says, David said, David couldn't have been talking about himself, had to be talking about the Christ, the Messiah. And what he said was he'd be raised from the dead. And these guys who are standing in front of me say they're witnesses that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they are credible witnesses, given what's happening right here suddenly realize that my whole nation had been looking for a messiah for generations and in my generation he came and we including me crucified yeah you know let, let me add one more uh layer to that for perhaps and uh correct me if you see this differently uh you mentioned if they had been there you know those that were there seven weeks earlier crying out crucify him go back about seven and a half weeks uh, on what is perhaps the Tuesday uh, before the crucifixion. And one of the things when the religious leaders were challenging Jesus, all kinds of hard questions, Jesus asked them a question about how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he quotes the same verse right. that Peter quotes. And the text tells us that the common people heard him gladly. You know, those that were sitting there listening to Jesus going like, wow, that is incredible. Listen to that. And then maybe a few days later, yelling out crucify because they've been, uh, you know, caught up in uh, the uh, 
the, the movement that led by the, the religious leaders, and now they realize Jesus wasn't just giving some uh, uh, theological lesson there. He was referencing himself. Peter is showing us this is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. Um, wow. I mean, to me, all of that would just, yeah. it, it would floor you. Yeah, yeah. So they so in Acts chapter two, the, their response, the audience response is given in Acts chapter two and verse 37. This translation says they were pricked in their heart. I, I like the translations that say they were cut to the heart. What is your what do you have? Yeah, the New King James says cut to the heart. And they cried out, Brett, and, and I often have people read this when I'm studying with somebody, we're going through this text, and I'll say, read this, and and they'll say, uh, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? No, no read it how they would have said it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah this is this is not monotone here at all uh this what do we do yeah yeah is there Boy. anything possible i mean the desperation uh in their in their voices in their hearts at this point you know it, it has all come uh, you know to to light for them and they realize we have killed the son of god the messiah that we have all been longing for, we rejected him. And, what and what hope would, is there? Yeah, and, and, and you might think of Jesus' statement when Peter asked, or one of the disciples asked, uh, um, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, well, well, with men, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Yeah. God's got a plan. He's got... But you made a statement a few minutes ago about how this was not just an emotional thing. There's a lot of emotion here, clearly, but there's a rational argument that has been made that in the minds of the people has convinced them that Jesus is, is the Christ. This is interesting to me because this is a passage in which we are talking about a very conspicuous working of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit being being central to what's going on here in Acts chapter 2, and yet what, what the people are convinced by is a rational, logical presentation of the facts and argument. Those two things are not contradictory, right. and yet in the minds of a lot of people, they associate the work of the Holy Spirit or being led with the Holy Spirit with how they feel about something, with emotions. The work of the Holy Spirit is, is involved in things like evidences, signs that were to convince people, give them reason to believe. And, and and Peter here, speaking by the Holy Spirit, and I'm convinced he is, is making a logical, rational argument from things the Holy Spirit has said through David in the Old Testament. I think that a lot of people need to to break away from this 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 uh, relationship they, they have in their minds that the Holy Spirit and being emotionally motivated go hand in hand. It, our, we, the, I tell you what, becoming aware of, of my desperate need for salvation and then, and then finding that there is salvation in Jesus Christ is an emotional thing. But those emotions are the result of an understanding of facts. Um, and, and so I, 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 I wanted to make that observation here. I've got a little uh, maintenance I've got to do, Joe. If you want to pick it up and show what Peter told them when they said, what do we need to do? I'm wondering if it's not back on. It, it may be. But, um, so let me go back to just a, a quick thought. 
Um, I think it's tied together there. I heard a long time ago, I have no idea where the quote comes from, but religion produces emotion, but emotion does not produce religion. Right. Um, and, and I just think that's, that's helpful to see even in this text. Um, but what is it that God made Jesus in verse 36? It says that he made him Lord and Christ. Right. I wonder if we were writing this, uh, you know, you and I, Jeff, or, or any of the listeners, what might be the things, if we hadn't already known this, what might we put in there? Um, Lord and Christ may not be the things that we would necessarily um, want to, to think of first. Yeah, we might put Savior. Yeah, that, that would be my first thought would have been Savior. Uh, you know, he's made him your savior. Okay. Oh, great. Then. Right, okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but made him Lord and Christ. So Lord, um, uh, what the idea of master um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and Christ, the anointed, the chosen one from God, um, uh, even referring to, to maybe even his, uh, his majesty, his kingship even to, to include. Um, he, he's chosen by, by the Lord. And so He's ruler over us, and that means that we need to submit. He has made Jesus Lord and Christ. If he's not our Lord and Christ, he won't be our Savior. Yeah. Um, uh, so, go ahead. So, so in verse 38, Peter responds to them when they cry out, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, under the remission of your sins. I'm going to pause there, but I'm, I'm not stopping there. I'm going to pause there because I just the, the relief that that would have brought to the ears of, of sincere hearers to think I can have my sins run, I can be forgiven of what I've done here. Wow. And then yeah. he says, and you'll and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we'll talk about that, but let's not go flying past what Peter tells them: repent and be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ, repent, have a change of heart. John had been preaching repentance. Jesus had been pre pre preaching repentance. We have, in the Old Testament, uh, there was, in the very passage in Ezekiel, where God talks about putting, pouring out his spirit on the people. He talks about, I will put a new spirit in you. I will, I will put a new heart in you, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. Repentance, even the very Greek word translated repentance refers to a change of mind, a change, an inward change. Have a change uh, of your perspective of what you think is important. Going back to your comments, let Jesus be Lord. Right. Instead of you being your own Lord, make Jesus your Lord. Submit to that. They, they have rejected him. They need to do a 180. Um, 180. Uh, they, they need to submit to him. They, they have they've refused to do that. Now they need and be baptized. But, but there is but there's opportunity for yeah. it, and so so thankful. Let me just mention I was studying uh, with a uh, with a man today, and he's lived a pretty sordid life, um, uh, very very checkered, um, and and he he talked to me uh, this morning about could Jesus really forgive him? Mm -hmm. um, and we went through and looked at some of the examples of people like Paul an insolent, blaspheming murderer that God forgave, or the Corinthians who were adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and thieves and drunkards and God, and, and, but they were those things and God had forgiven. They were, they were washed, they were sanctified. Um, you know, if, if the individuals who had yelled, crucify, crucify, 
can find forgiveness. If they could change and find forgiveness, then that opens hope for all of the rest of us. None of us are worthy of it, um, uh, but God is gracious. Mm -hmm. But he also includes, you, you mentioned repent and then be baptized. Um, is, is that a new concept for the Jews? Is this something that would have been fresh for them? No, not at all. I mean, well, Jesus had been baptizing many people before him. John had been baptizing many people. But before that, the Jews had this concept of ritual washing for purification to be able to go into the temple, for example. And in the Old Testament, there were washings that were required. Hebrews, the sixth chapter, refers to things that at that time Jewish believers needed to move on from things of the Old Testament that were a foundation for understanding the Christ. And in Hebrews, the writer is saying, you need to make some more progress, not just sit on the things you already knew. And among those things is, is washings or baptisms of a sort. Mm -hmm. so, so they had this concept of ritual washing. But now what you have is in Jesus Christ, there's the actual means of our forgiveness uh, being available because of his sacrifice. And the, the baptism is not just a pouring some water on me. It's a burial. Paul talked about it as a burial in Romans, the sixth chapter. And it's a burial that corresponds to Jesus' burial, a death, burial, and a resurrection. We go down into the waters of baptism and come up out, raised to walk in newness of life. And so God has given us this action to perform as a demonstration of our faith and our trust in Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. And when we, when we do this, then we are baptized into Christ, into his body. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. One other thing that, that I wanted to mention here, um, just going back, I guess, let me make this quick. Just what you were talking about, the young, the individual you were talking with this morning, can, can, can I be forgiven? Uh, there's this simple statement that Jesus makes back in the book of Matthew. I came not to call the righteous, but the um, sinners to repentance. The sinners to repentance. That was uh, the text we were studying this morning. Okay. And the, 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 those who are sick have no need of a physician. Right. Yeah. That, that it's a, it's a simple, but profound concept. Oh yeah. Uh, Jesus didn't come to find the ones who are really good. Right. Uh, none of us are. Right. He he came because we're all in a bad way. Uh, that, we, we were studying it from Mark 2, but that was the, 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 the same uh, event that, that we were talking about. Now, uh, I, I want to say two minutes, and we're, we're about out of time, but let's at least take a minute here and talk about this statement, and you shall receive the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what I think about this, Joe, and you can tell me what you think about it. And people look at this, and they, they see different things here. For my part, I think what he is saying is, he started out with, this is what was prophesied by Joel, and Joel talked about a pouring out of God's Spirit. Ezekiel talked about a pouring out of God's Spirit. That was something they were anticipating. Uh, Peter says, what you're seeing now is what was talked about by Joel, but I don't think Peter means it's the totality of what Joel was talking about. If you look at the very passage that um, Peter quotes, he talks about the Spirit being poured out upon all flesh. Later on, we're going to see that especially accomplished in the case of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, when Gentiles uh, have the Holy Spirit come upon them. So I, I see Acts chapter 2 as the beginning of this pouring out of God's Spirit, 
upon all flesh. And I would say it continues to this day that among God's people, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and by that, I would understand that to mean the Holy Spirit is the gift that is poured out upon us. Now, we could talk at length about exactly what that means, but maybe for our purposes, I'd leave it at that for today. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So to me, the other option is that the Holy Spirit is giving the gift. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right. That would be the um, other option. And, and I, I like that option. I, at the end of the day, both of them are true. Right. It's just a question of what this text is talking about. I refer back to Acts 2 and in verse 21, it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in the verse 38, he's talking about salvation. And uh, so I see it as the Holy Spirit being the giver. I, I don't feel strongly, I think, because both of them are true, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, they, they may even just be so closely intertwined that, that maybe it's both. Yeah. I, and, and I don't mean to take a, you know, to weasel my way out of it. But, but the Holy Spirit is our down payment, is our guarantee, if you will, Ephesians 1, and, uh, and, and what it is that he is, has offered is salvation. So. Yep. Good. All right, real quickly, as we wrap it up, just some bullets going back through, just thinking about kind of how this flows. First of all, there are phenomenal signs that happen on this occasion, and Peter says it's what was prophesied in the Old Testament about God pouring out a spirit. And then, and then he starts talking about Jesus. He says, you, you know who this Jesus was, and you knew that he did these signs, so you, you had to know God was with him. But you crucified him by the hand of lawless men, but God raised him from the dead. And then Peter says, now I'm going to tell you, your scriptures, Psalm 16, David, said something about somebody who would, his flesh would dwell in hope. He'd be raised from the dead. And as a matter of fact, said that he wouldn't even see corruption. Well, Peter says, David couldn't have been talking about himself. David's been in the grave for a thousand years. His body has seen corruption. So who is he talking about? Well, Peter says David was a prophet, and God had sworn that one of his descendants would sit on the throne, talking about the Messiah. Peter says, so David was talking about that the Christ, the Messiah, would, would be raised from the dead and would not see corruption. And, uh, and we're witnesses of the fact that the Jesus that we talked about a few minutes ago that was from Nazareth and did those signs, that he was raised from the dead. And so he is the Christ. And uh, so God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's, that's the sermon. Yeah. And, and, and this, is, this is crucial. You know, every sermon, is there an exception in the book of Acts? The, the sermons in the book of Acts of any length talk about the, the, the focus is on the resurrection. Right. That's, that's the evidence for, for Jesus being the Christ. All through the book of Acts. All right. Thanks a lot, Joe. And thank you all for listening. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be with you again next week.